0: It's time for Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It's Legally Speaking. Good morning, Michael. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some interesting stories on the agenda this week. I'm reading the first one here, a question of who owns a dog and her puppies, does that say?
1: That's exactly it. Uh, and like maybe that's a bigger philosophical question about uh, who, who can own a dog. <laughs> um And this is a case out of Port Alberti. Uh, And the uh, case uh, involves a uh, person who went to uh, purchase, from their perspective, a dog from an organization presenting itself as Ziggy's Rescue. Um, And uh, they showed up and they wound up uh, paying some $600 uh, and uh, signing a contract uh, and then taking home a, a, a dog. Um, and uh, the uh, the dog uh, uh, seemed to be doing uh, well. Uh, the dog, by the way, uh, her name was uh, Maddie, so Maddie the dog. Okay. Um, but uh, very quickly, uh, a dispute uh, arose between Ziggy's, or the woman holding herself or doing business as Ziggy's Rescue, yes, uh, and the uh, adoptive parents of the dog, um, and. The uh, the dispute ultimately, the legal dispute, centered around this contract which was signed. Um, and what uh, part of the contract said that uh, the adoptive parents of um, uh, Maddie uh, needed to have uh, Maddie uh, spayed. But it turned out that Maddie was pregnant. So that wasn't possible immediately. Um, and things got worse when uh, Ziggy's, the woman operating as Ziggy's Rescue... Uh, showed up at the home of the people who purchased the dog, uh, demanding uh, the dog and ultimately the puppies, (laughs) Uh, and uh, pointing to provisions of the contract uh, that allowed her to uh, attend to the home at any time. Uh, There was a screaming match where the uh, woman doing business as Ziggy's Rescue uh, was, according to the judge, uh, yelling out uh, things at the person's gate Uh, like uh, puppy thieves uh, and uh, saying things that she was going to call the police and we will bury you. (laughs) 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 We will bury you over the puppies. We will bury. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, and so this all wound up eventually in provincial court, in small claims court. Oh, good. With uh, the the woman uh, doing business as Ziggy's Rescue, uh, claiming uh, for uh, what she said was lost revenue, uh, including from the puppies. Uh, and so uh, the uh, judge, first of all, I mean, it's a very interesting findings. First of all, the the woman operating this. Uh, or uh, holding herself out as Ziggy's Rescue, claimed to be a non-profit, uh, but uh, the judge concluded that, uh, at this line, however, simply identifying yourself as a nonprofit organization does not mean you are one, <laughs> uh, and concluded that the woman was, in fact, operating a-, a business. She would charge several hundred dollars for each dog, Uh, and uh, she would rescue the dogs. The judge found that uh, the woman gave evidence that she had removed dogs from a First Nations community in northern Manitoba, Mm -hmm. brought them back to British Columbia, uh, and was effectively selling them uh, and then making money selling puppies as well. Um, And uh, the judge found that the woman was simply not forthcoming about what was uh, going on, uh, that uh, even though she claimed to be a non-profit society, Uh, That did not appear to be so, Uh, and when the judge asked her questions about things like uh, the amount of money being made and whether she was reporting it, uh, she gave evasive answers like, well, I'm getting to that or (laughs) things to that effect. Uh, But that then brought the judge to, okay, well, what's to be done with uh, Maddie and the puppies? Yeah, Um, And the uh, people who purchased the puppies, or purchased Maddie who had the puppies, uh, gave the puppies to the SPCA. Um and somehow the uh Ziggy uh, person wound up getting the puppies from the s p c a hmm. and so ultimately, the judge found that it turned on an interpretation of the quote foster or foster to adoption contract, which was sounds like something that was made up by Ziggy's or the <laughs> woman operating as Ziggy 's rescue. And the judge found it to be sort of confusing, uh, a confusing contract, and the uh, those concepts the judge pointed out had quite different uh, connotations. Somebody who is fostering a dog suggests that's something temporary, whereas somebody who is adopting a dog, that sounds like something permanent. Uh, and some of the legal principles the judge applied to interpreting this agreement um, involved, first of all, a, a concept Uh, of conditions in a contract being unreasonable and not enforceable for that reason. And the judge found that, for example, some of the conditions written in there included this purported condition to allow anyone from this woman or anyone associated with Ziggy's to show up at the home at any time without any warning uh, to... Deal with the dog forever, hmm, forever. Uh, and indeed, wow. she, indeed, she showed up in that way, you know, calling the defendant's names and causing a disturbance and uh, yelling out the thing the judge found she yelled out. Uh, and also, conditions uh, written in there saying that if there was any breach of the agreement, the dog had to be returned <laughs> at any time. And the judge found that those things were unreasonable uh, and not enforceable terms of the contract. The other very interesting thing the judge did. Uh, is the uh, the judge assessed, you know, how is a dog to be considered? He said, look, the dog's been referred to at various times as a good, a chattel, uh, an animal, or the property. Uh, and the judge, interestingly, he referred to some previous cases that uh, had moved in this direction, but the judge found that one of the considerations he needed to give when interpreting the contract uh, was Maddie's best interest. Hmm. Which is very interesting. That's, of course, the concept we would apply with children. Yeah, for example, yeah. when a judge is deciding about kids, is what's in the best interests of the child. Um, and so the judge found that, uh, in his view, uh, he needed to recognize that, that dogs and other pets are not simply things like a chair or a car or something. And the judge found that it was important uh, for him to consider things like. You know what kind of a bond did the dog have with somebody? Right, who took the dog for walks? Had they bonded? What Hmm. was in the best interest of the dog? Interesting. And that was a variable, a important consideration. Um, And so, taking into account the best interests of Maddie, how this contract was worded, and an assessment of the, um, I guess, veracity of the evidence given by the woman doing business as Ziggy's Rescue, uh, the judge concluded. Uh, that and it's I thought a heartwarming uh, uh, quote at the end. Every dog must have his day, and today is Maddie's day. <laughs> uh, and concluded uh, that the dog should know who the dog's forever home was going to be, uh, and that home was going to be the home of the people who had uh, adopted the dog. Um, and uh, having taken in uh, taken a pretty dim view of this person who had been, uh, according to the judge, holding herself out to be a nonprofit profit organization when, in fact, she was selling dogs and making a claim for lost revenue from the puppies the dog had uh, and uh, t- took uh, an extremely dim view of that. And so at the end of the day, uh, the judge interpreted the contract uh, in a way to find uh, that the people who had paid $600 to the woman doing business at Ziggy's Rescue... Um, were the uh, proper owner of uh, of Maddie, uh, and that uh, Maddie can finally know that she's in her forever home, uh, and the judge concluded that, and the defendant's family uh, are made whole. Um, and so that's the outcome of the case. Interestingly, mm-hmm. uh, if uh, somebody looks, Ziggy's Rescue, which is from Port Alberni, yeah, still is apparently operating. Uh, and if you look at their uh, webpage, they have things on it like uh, donation buttons and pictures of all these dogs Uh, And it's very interesting to contrast at least the online presentation with the findings of the judge uh, in terms of what, in fact, is going on at Ziggy's Rescue. Mm. Uh, And so uh, hopefully there's uh, people uh, pay some attention to the judgment. Uh, They can uh, give some consideration uh, to uh, whether they wish to make a donation uh, or uh, whether uh, that is somebody they want to do business with if they're looking for uh, a dog. Michael so, Mulligan. The uh, story Maddie.
0: Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. That's one story. Another interesting story or two I'm seeing here on the agenda. We'll take a quick break and we'll return with all the latest right after this. Legally speaking continues on CFAX 1070, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Up next, Michael, I'm reading here the Canadian Mink Breeders Association and a request for material used by cabinet. What's going on here?
1: Well, we're keeping with the animal theme. All right. That's the first thing is going on. But what's going on here is that you may recall uh, during the sort of height of uh, COVID, uh, there being a concern that COVID can be passed to and from mink. Um, and there was a concern that a number of mink had uh, tested positive for COVID. And, of course, the concern was there might be some mutation caused by that and the disease passed along in some other way, obviously not desirable, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, and so the uh, British uh, British Columbia government in the form of the provincial cabinet, the Senate Governor and Council uh, passed some regulations with the objective of phasing out all mink farming operations in British Columbia by 2025 citing the risk that the industry poses to public health Um, and not surprisingly that didn't go over well with the mink farmers uh, nor the Canadian Mink Breeders Association. We have such a thing uh, and there's a Provincial version, the British Columbia Mink Producers Association, so huh. a well-represented group of mink farmers. And so there is a judicial review going on with those associations and the uh, farms that would be shut down by 2025, um, challenging uh, that uh, uh, those regulations. Um, and so one of the issues that uh, has arisen is what right do the... Um, uh, mink farmers and the association uh, associations have to the documents that cabinet relied upon when making the decision to wind up that industry. Hmm. Um, and the argument being made by the mink breeders associations uh, and, and company um, are that they need to have access to those things to be able to make their argument that the government decision was unreasonable in some fashion. Hmm uh and that has been opposed by the provincial government um and it's been opposed on the basis of uh that the broad concept uh that uh, cabinet uh discussions and material are privileged exactly yeah uh, and and that has been a, a long standing um uh, position right yeah. part of the idea is that you want government to be able to have uh, sort of free discussions about things uh but the Supreme Court of Canada in a case from 1982 um Smallwood and uh, Sparling concluded that the claim of uh, privilege for cabinet material is not absolute hmm. um it's there's what the court found to be a qualified public interest immunity interesting uh, and so the court found that the Supreme Court of Canada found in that case uh that there is uh, not this absolute blanket privilege is not uh Uh, an automatic right, but on the other hand, uh, individuals don't have an automatic right to uh, to discovery of sensitive and confidential documents held by the state, right? You you know, somebody can't say, look, I want to challenge your uh, uh, decision to, I don't know, send equipment to uh, the Ukraine, and so to do it, I want all of the information you have about the war (laughs) or something to be, oh, hold on, we can't have that going on. Uh, but what the court concluded in the uh, in this uh, mink breeder's case uh, is a middle ground, and the court has concluded that and ordered uh, the government to prepare a detailed affidavit setting out what all the documents were the cabinet relied upon, and. Uh, if there is going to be a, a claim made uh, for public interest immunity to avoid uh, providing uh, those documents to the mink breeders, uh, there needs to be an argument made uh, as to why that's so uh, for each of the documents. And the court found that, you know, in some cases, the uh, that kind of a claim is going to be so clear uh, that it's not going to be necessary for the court to review the documents. Like, for example, with a war going on, if somebody said, "I want to see all the tactical maps used to make the decision to do X or Y," the court could say, "Look, we don't even need to review that. Uh, no, <laughs> you don't get the you don't get the tactical maps of the Ukraine. No. Uh, to challenge the government decision. No. Sure. But on the other hand, uh, there can be uh, other documents when there's this sort of detailed description of them that the court may well find it's appropriate for them to be uh, reviewed by the court, um, at least in a uh, closed setting uh, to determine whether they are things uh, that should be properly provided uh, to allow a meaningful review. Uh, because you can imagine it's pretty difficult if you're trying to challenge some decision uh, as being uh, unreasonable, if you have no basis to point to, well, how is this decision made? What did you rely upon? Was there evidence saying that if we don't ban, you know, mink farming by 2025, there's going to be a risk to the public? Maybe the material said there's no particular risk at all. I guess to my mind, one of the immediate things that causes me to think about is if this is a serious problem, why are we waiting till 2025? Yeah. (laughs) If these minks, uh, mink have the possibility of uh, causing a mutation of a, a disease in a way that could make it worse, perhaps you want to act faster than 2025. But in any case, uh, that's the uh, the interim decision here. And so the government has been ordered to provide that detailed information. Uh, and then there can be a decision made about whether there are particular claims with respect to some of those things. And the court will then determine whether it's obvious that those kind of things are protected by public interest immunity or whether it's necessary to review the material uh, to determine whether there is some uh, important, you know, uh, uh, government information there that uh, shouldn't be uh, disclosed in order to permit the uh, litigation uh, to go ahead. So the mink breeders, they're uh, they're on it. Fascinating. What's next? Uh, the final case on the agenda for today uh, is a case uh, out of the court of appeal, and it's a case dealing with a dispute. Uh, at a small strata, uh, I think should be a cautionary tale for people, and cause you to look carefully if you're purchasing strata property. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the essence of the dispute: it's a small strata with only three units in it, and, and two of the. And there's a backyard area of the strata, uh, and there's a deck, and along with then a flight of stairs uh, that runs off of a small landing, and two of the units. Uh, would need to go down the stairs to get into the backyard where things like the garbage is kept and the, you know, um, uh, uh, carports or garages, things of that sort. Uh, And the trouble arose because the deck area was described as what's referred to as limited common property, which is kind of a, what's that? Uh, And the idea with a a strata is Mm -hmm. that you can have property which is described as limited common property, meaning it's common property, it's owned by the strata, but it's been set aside for the exclusive use of one particular strata owner, right? So, an example, a common example of that might be uh, a parking space, right, in a, a strata development, versus that parking space is for the exclusive use of a particular unit. Right Even though it, the parking overall is owned by the Strata Corporation, uh, and so what happened here is that for a number of years, everything seemed to work fine in that the even though this deck was designated as the limited common property of one of the units it owned all of it or had the exclusive use of it, the other unit needed to walk across a small landing to get from their door to go down the stairs. And for years, everything was fine, right? Despite how that was legally defined, everyone just kind of acted reasonably. But human affairs don't always go well, (laughs) and so various disputes over things like where garbage was gonna be kept, and whether there should be tenants, and various, a planter it would seem, led eventually to the, the owners of the strata unit that had this deck designated as limited common property, saying to the owners of the other unit, you can't cross it, which meant that they were unable to walk down the stairs to get to the backyard, uh, and so off the case went to court. Um, and the argument made at trial, this is a court of appeal decision, uh, by the uh, owners of the unit that had to cross, go across this little landing uh, to then walk into the backyard. Uh, their argument was a concept of promissory estoppel, Sort of, a huh. hey, for years we were allowed to do this. Basically, we should be co- permitted to continue to do this. It's not fair that this person could cut us off even though they've uh, had some unhappiness over a planter in the garbage and renters and various other things. And they succeeded, uh, at least at the trial level. But that still wasn't the end of it. In this case, went off to the Court of Appeal, which is the decision that just came out. And the I, I suppose on one level the judgment at trial is kind of a practical solution to this problem, right? Uh, Because you've got these two units, they both have doors, both people need to get to the backyard and really what does it matter if somebody's walking across uh, a landing to go down the stairs? Uh, But the court of appeal is of course concerned with things like setting precedent and making sure that decisions are all in accordance with the law uh, and the Court of Appeal found that that concept of promissory estoppel, that, hey, I was permitted to do this for a long time by other people, wasn't a basis uh, to enforce a right to keep going over this little landing, to go down the stairs. Um, and so they reversed the uh, judge and found that, no, indeed, uh, the uh, owners of the strata unit who had this deck designated as limited common property meant effectively that was theirs to do with as they want. And they didn't have an obligation to permit the other property owners to go across it to get down the stairs. They were allowed to deny that. Um, and so that's the decision, uh, and what it means is that uh, the people who have the other unit, the one that uh, d- don't have the deck designated as limited common property for their use, have a door which they can't go through, uh, because as soon as they would go through it, they would be on this deck, which they don't have any right to be on. Um, and so the court of Appe- that's the decision of the Court of Appeal, but the court did point out that it's not as if there's no possible remedy, the court pointed out that there is authority uh, for the registrar of land titles to correct an error uh, on a strata plan. Like if there's an erroneous strata plan drawn yeah. up, there's a mistake. Yeah, uh, There's authority for the registrar to correct that. Hmm. And so the court suggested perhaps that's an avenue, right, on the basis that, look, it was clearly contemplated that uh, the people in the other unit would be able to go out this door <laughs> to get into the backyard. Uh, and so that's a possible remedy. Uh, and the court also pointed out that there's another section of the Strata Property Act, which is the act that kind of regulates how people interact in a strata, which is section 164. And the, and that section allows an application to be made by, interestingly, either an owner or a tenant uh, to the Supreme Court uh, in, in order to seek a remedy for an unfair action by a strata corporation. Hmm. Uh, It's pretty broad. Uh, And so uh, the argument there would be uh, there might be an effort to have the Strata Corporation change the uh, designation of the deck. And if that didn't work, perhaps uh, there could be an application made under that section of the Strata Property Act. Uh, and so the court of appeal said, "Look, there may be a couple of legal remedies for this problem, but that concept of promissory estoppel—the last people let us do it for a long time—wasn't yeah. a possible remedy. And so, at the moment, uh, the uh, owners will need to uh, stew in their unit and not go across." the landing, to get to the stairway, to get into the backyard, and they'll need to consider one of those other remedies if they want to take their trash out.
0: Legally speaking, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. Michael, it's a pleasure as always. I find these segments endlessly fascinating, as you often say, the endless complexity of human affairs and how courts find when faced with those circumstances.
1: (laughs) It it never ends, but, uh, you know, happily... uh, Uh, Many of the decisions end in the way the uh, first one did with a uh, happy ending for uh, for Maddie. I like that one. Always a pleasure. That was a good one. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. Talk to you next week.